0: Right, uh, if everyone could sit down. If you've availed yourself of the coffee, please, uh, if you haven't, please tuck in, courtesy of the Middle East Centre, we aim to please. Um, We've just been delayed by five minutes by some technical hitches, which have just been overcome by the satisfied look on our speaker's face. If you could turn all your mobile phones off, so we don't get disturbed. And We've
1: filled.
0: Right, we've run out of chairs. we have got one there. Oh, there's two here. while we're sorting that out. It gives me uh, great pleasure to uh, introduce Jonathan Wurzen from Yale University, uh, the author of a forthcoming book with Cornell called Making Morocco. Uh, This is a collaboration between the Middle East Centre and the International Relations Department and the Standing Group on Historical Sociology at London School of Economics. As I look around the room, it's a pleasure to see a diversity of students Uh, faculty from across the school, and I think that speaks very well to our interdisciplinarity. Our director would be proud of us, I'm sure. But uh, that wasn't a joke. But um, more importantly, um, we've got a great paper, which I hope all of you have uh, read. It's incredibly ambitious, full of big ideas, but also uh, some quite uh, nice empirical comparisons. Jonathan, against that background, will speak for up to, say, half an hour, which will give us an hour, it may even be shorter, give us an hour to discuss, uh, without further ado. Thank Jonathan. You.
2: Thank you so much. Uh, it's really a pleasure to be here. I, I'm so thankful for the opportunity to have this uh, organized. Um, I wanted to start off by um, just giving a little bit of the origin story for the project, uh, And I'm just going to quickly, you know, in this in the time that I have, try to give um, you just remind us of the overall some of the bigger points about that, and then and then allow us to get into the nitty gritty during the Q and A. So my first project looked at the making of Morocco during the colonial period. It was uh, very much in line with the the kind of things that uh, Professor Dodge. uh, uh, explores in, in, uh, in his Iraq book, um, looking at the the creation of these uh, political units, uh, and what I was interested in was, after that had been created, what happens within that space, and I was really interested in Moroccan perspectives. So that, that book is, is uh, uh, looks at the outcome that I'm interested in is the politicization of identity. But in the the stages in which the French and the Spanish are creating uh, a space like Morocco, it doesn't exist in the, the sense that it exists in the present, uh, in the 1910s, in the 1920s. Um, and this map kind of gives you an idea in terms of areas that are under political, under state control, either Spanish or French, are autonomous from that control. And it takes the French uh, until 1934 to subdue, to pacify uh, Morocco. And so part of the book looks at that process and it looks at the populations that are affected by that and does a kind of bottom-up reading of how those populations are affected by that. But when I'm looking at the 1920s I'm thinking about the reef, uh, I started thinking that this is something that's obviously not a Moroccan story, this is something that's going um, across the board. And in the 1920s from Morocco to uh, at least as far as, as Central Asia, you have a similar process that's happening. Um, and so what I'm interested in this project, uh, one thing is a kind of a historical intervention. It's a re of the making of the Middle East. Um, and I usually show my students this, uh, re- it's been a couple of years now, it's a John Oliver sketch from The Daily Show, which I imagine you have some familiarity with. Uh, but he's a drunken British pith helmet wearing colonial map drawer that's talking about the problems. And this isn't in line of the... Uh, the turmoil in in Iraq and Syria, et cetera. And it's basically, you know, it's this gin-swilling colonial administrator that screwed up the Middle East and didn't draw the lines right. Um, And so I I think part of this moment, obviously, there's a very present moment in which these issues are are in play, uh, where this map is destabilized, and there's a lot of uh, contention surrounding that. So to rehistoricize um, what what political space looked like is is one of the major uh, themes that, that I'm interested in exploring, um, and to basically demonstrate that this idea of a kind of settled nation state political unit is a recent construction. It's a somewhat perhaps uh, ephemeral construction, and um, that you know the long If you you know everyone in the room, I think more or less has uh, this kind of a sense. I'm preaching the choir, but the Middle East has been Organized by a whole different levels of supranational and subnational types of uh, political order. So, so to talk about the Ottoman core areas, I mean this is one of the levels that you know from for some four, three, four hundred years was the prevalent uh, order. Then you start getting these kind of maps. So like in the 19th century, the European, uh, the the French kick kick off the party um, in Algeria, and then you have a a succession of these areas that get taken off under French, Italian, British, uh, and Spanish more and less direct control. But this map, of course, uh, I have a problem with this map, because those lines are, are very much uh, fictional and aspirational. I just showed you the Morocco map, it doesn't look like that um, before World War I. Um, after the war, this is the map that we think of, uh, and again, this is where we're getting into 1925, and if you read the paper, this is my point. This is not really the map in 1925. If you were going to have some sort of a uh, big data way to topographically map out uh, what political units are, are in existence at this moment, 1925, this is not what the map would look like. The boundaries aren't there. You would not use color coding. You'd have to have some sort of a, a, a kind of a... a these of these like, uh, dots or something that would measure this, this type of order um, so you know being, I'm, I, the, the, the sort of central thrust here is, is kind of agnosticism that sits in the present of the 1920s and both empirically and conceptually tries to handle what is happening on the ground at that moment which is obviously such a pivotal moment uh, for the 20th century and into the 21st century um so my move here is to look at these revolts um, I, as I mentioned I, I'm kind of starting off with the reef uh, but thinking that uh, the, the roles the revolts that I've identified are this uh, case selection that one, and we can talk more about this but it it's a kind of a firewall against methodological nationalism because the revolts themselves problematize the the existence of that kind of a, a political space um, and as a, a type of socio-political historical phenomena it's a very local phenomena but it's it's it sits between the local and much broader translocal uh, developments that are happening um, part of this is the salience of these cross-border interactions that are happening in the reef uh, uh, as the paper discusses, uh, the boundary with the French Algeria and French Morocco is critical, and when that changes, the dynamics of the should change dramatically. Something very similar happens with the uh, Sunussi revolt in Libya. Um, these, I mean, these are obvious sort of long durate or, or, or ongoing dynamics that, that would be the same stories happening uh, in Afghanistan and Pakistan. Um, These type of uh, safe havens or the type of uh, material and uh, demographic types of uh, lines of support are important. Um, The revolts themselves create a unit that demands cross-empire analysis and intra-empire comparison. So the French in the Reef, the French in Syria, um, the British and the Turkish Republic in Kurdistan, these are uh, central factors that cross borders. Um, and the, the cases themselves aren't autonomous. They, they're they very much interpenetrated with each other. And this also brings in these local actors that I think are just as much a part of the driving causal chains that are happening at this moment. So Ibn Saud, uh, someone like Ataturk Adi, uh, or uh, Abdul Karim. And the other thing, and in terms of the Middle Easterner and the the, bifurcation that we have in Middle East studies between those that work on North Africa and those that work on the Middle East, I started off working on Palestine and Israel and spent my time there and then uh, fled to Morocco, where it's a little bit less intense. And so I'm coming back to, you know, I'm still retaining my distance uh, with uh, with my historical uh, orientation here. Um, but to try to think about this, t- right, this is something that we kind of specialize on one side or the other. We specialize on French empire versus British empire or on this part versus that part. But to try to d- create this platform from which to talk about them in the same frame. Um, so just put this up. Is this And this is a heuristic, uh, a, a conceptual way to try to talk about the ni- dynamics that are, are happening here. Um, is using this idea of a field. And so thinking about space, thinking about this force that's being applied within that space, the type of forces, rather, they're plural. Um, so here the, the metaphor is, is uh, the kind of electromagnetic, um, physical sort of a metaphor, um, which also brings in this idea of polarity, and polarities, and uh, layering. The fact that these fields sit adjacent to one another and the effects of them don't just stop at some sort of, again, the boundaries that run the map. They, they overlap uh, across those those borders. And then to shift the metaphor to a football pitch or, or where you have that all of those dynamics shaping how actors are engaging in struggle and interacting together. So the other distinction that's important here is a settled versus an unsettled political field. And as I mentioned in the paper, it's not like the whole Middle East is up for grabs and it's it's in turmoil. You have places like Algeria and Tunisia and Egypt that themselves aren't really being contested. The kind of boundaries uh, in some of those forces have been set, and the state has, in the prior century or in prior decades, more or less amassed uh, that kind of a mono- more or less of monopoly. And so that the claims are being made from local actors against that state. And obviously Egypt is not a settled place in 1919, but that's more mostly happening within that unit rather than being intersected as much from the outside. Um, similarly, um, Tunisia and Algeria don't remain settled. Um, it's just the, uh, i go back. Um, and so then the other side, right? And so these these line up that the, again, these ideal types, it's oversimplifying, but these are sort of ways of understanding what's happening in these two, two types of fields. Um, so one of the, to talk about this in, in this sort of global historical developments, Jim Scott talks about this idea of enclosure, he's speaking about Southeast Asia, but you definitely have the same dynamics that are happening across the Middle East and North Africa at this moment, where you have these state projects of really shifting what in human history has been known uh, in terms of political orders and moving towards, based upon for technological and bureaucratic, te- bureaucratic technologies and um, various sort of military and uh, intelligent uh, technologies enclosing self-governing spaces within a state, what I'm calling a field. And so this is entailing a shift to, you know, a Bavarian type of a conception of a state, with a, a unipolar type of a political field. In the region, this is uh, a shift towards total pacification from a prior acceptance of Uh, the fact that we don't have to govern this entire area. So from the the Moroccan example, uh, Hubert uh, Hubert Liotet, after the war, France obviously um, is trying to draw down, it's exhausted after the Great War. And so he has a a brilliant PR sort of message, which is that, well, we've we've pacified useful Morocco, we're gonna leave Maroc inutile, alone and not mess with it. It's too much trouble. We've got the good stuff and, and we're fine. Which is, is an interesting. This is something that I think is an open question is like, are, do states necessarily have to just eradicate local autonomy and local forms of uh, non-state space? It's an open question up until the 1920s. By the end of the 1930s, it's more or less a closed question. It's not, like the, it's not closed forever. It's reopened in the, in the past 10 years. But um, across the board, the Italians, especially after the rise of the to power, shift into a total pacification mode in in, in Libya. The British, uh, mm, I think, there's a mixed bag. There's like ways in which they sort of just leave an un, uh, not v, uh, governed by them space within in the kind of quintessential non-state space of uh, Central Arabia. But because what's happening there is this internal state-building project that's happening. So this is sort of a question uh, about is this a sort of uh, an ineluctable progression towards total pacification, total state space? Um, but you get these movements that are happening in each of these uh, cases, which is, in, in Jim Scott's word, making these areas legible and dominating them. Um, and the obverse effect of these state initiatives is that across the board, you get these very strong local movements for uh, trying to protect their autonomy. And so, sorry that got off a little bit there. But those can be, I, I make this classification between counter state movements, meaning movements to protect local autonomy that themselves involve state formation, rationalization of the military, rationalization of taxation, or these are nascent in some cases, a kind of rationalization of a juridical field. Um, you get this in the reef with uh, the the use of Sharia as a as a kind of detribalization tribalization mechanism. Uh, it changes the parameters of evidence. For instance, are not tribal oaths, which is a collective mechanism to to do uh, legal adjudication, shifts it to individual. So uh, Abdul Kareem is trying to consolidate these tribes in, into a state-governed uh, society. Uh, and we can look, at, this. Is, there's a range of different strategies here. Ataturk is obviously rebuilding off of the infra, uh, institutional infrastructure that had existed uh, off of the Ottoman Empire, but obviously doing a lot of uh, changes there too. And then on the other side, this sort of, again, in ideal types, is anti-state movements. And this is purely expressed in the Atlas Mountains, in which similar Berber tribes as existed in the Reef do not construct a counter-state in the Atlas, an Atlas Republic or something. They occasionally will coordinate uh, these pan, uh, these tribal confederations, but they do not sustain it over time, and eventually they're just slowly uh, overcome. And it, there are people in the room that know way more about this than me, and I'm very interested in your perspectives, but I think this is somewhat similar to the d- dynamics that are happening in Kurdistan. Um, maybe Christian might be less so and there's a mixture of different initiatives um, and Syria is another one that uh, I'm trying to get my head around in terms of a counter-state versus anti-state you don't really have a opposite pole to the French colonial state that develops uh, and I'm in, I'm in a, this is something for future research is figuring out why obviously there's a lot there there's a lot of the, the prior infrastructure you have a more well-developed sense of national identity et etc. So what's happening with the Syrian revolt, which is quite of sporadic, and there's these sort of local poles of resistance uh, in the Jebel Druze in the north, uh, et cetera, in Damascus mm-hmm. or in, in its environs, but you don't—it doesn't emerge as a, a kind of well uh, centralized resistance there or as a counter-state form of resistance. So that's another way to express it: is to have this uh, table. Um, where polarities and layering are expressed, I can put this back up. I want to just wrap up real quickly with a couple of um, thoughts, and I'm, I'm going to come back to that. That one we can maybe just have that up as we work through, because it it, it contains both the conceptual side and then in the cases. But so on the one hand, in terms of the, the the moment itself in the 1920s, is looking at these revolts definitely breaks us out of the Bavarian world. Um, it gets empire into the story. It gets local autonomous uh, regions into the story. Uh, it also, again, we don't have that uh, the map that was on the border, the map that might be in our minds with these color-coded uh, territorial interstate na- uh, system that, that uh, is, is very much of a fiction, uh, probably at any point in history, and it's definitely a fiction at this point. Um, so we can kind of start to see that, um, and then it puts these historical transitions in very specific places, uh, it helps understand that in a field structure. What about the present? I think there is a lot within us, and it's definitely part of the background uh, pressure or, or, or just the, 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 you know, the, the statement that we do history kind of according to a lot of the, these contemporary questions. Um, it helps us think about political space in the Middle East in terms of settled and unsettled, and there's a spectrum of those. Um, and, you know, you can see, look at Libya and Syria within these typologies, and we can talk more about, about that. Um, but where you definitely see polarity being a really important dynamic here, uh, these external uh, f- uh, factors that are having a lot of traction on the ground. Um, now, I'll throw out one of my, perhaps my own... Uh, my, one of my own questions, which might preempt some of yours, is like: so causation uh, does does a typology explain causation? And let's talk about that more. I'm gonna leave that maybe as an open <laughs> question. And I have some. I'm starting to work through what that means. I've been building up a descriptive typology, but there are pieces of it which I'm thinking. Uh, and I'm not a huge. Uh, uh, let's see, a predictive causal. Uh, type of a, of a social scientist but uh, I do think you know I think we need to think about those things uh, to kind of push and have more robust uh, histories in historical sociology and in transnational and global histories so I'm going to leave it there and open it up I'll put us back to that table
0: excellent thank you well in a, some hurried emails last night I think George and I appointed me discussing so um, <laughs> I'll, I'll speak for two or three minutes and all I'll do is just put a, a few big things on the table the first one may be mischievous uh, but it may not actually um, and you, you central centralised revolt as your key linking theme and I thought maybe the other way around would actually to centralise the notion of or- political order and it it's stri- and we'll get back to this I suspect But the, the, the one example I know most is Sheikh Mahmoud mm-hmm. uh, in Kurdistan and it, 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 it's It's. I think it's probably a, a project of political order, not anti-state. The second thing, which is, I think, much more serious and much more crucial is, and you've already uh, kind of hinted at that, is the causality. So if the causality is simply the imperial or colonial imposition of order, that's not a particularly interesting story. But if it's that and then a kind of adverse reaction of revolt, I think that's not a particularly interesting story either, but you you hint at but don't develop what links all these together beyond revolt and state building or beyond revolt and colonial imposition. Now, if there is uh, a a regional causality, is it modernity? Is it uh, the ability, the the nascent then, I suspect, ability to communicate? So the the institutions of communication, ala Anderson, I would have thought, uh, the, ability, the, the rising ability to be aware and communicate o- over different groups or is it something else and that would bring me back to the notion of identity which again you mentioned but you don't develop so what ideological, what ideational what self-perceptions, what imaginings are being deployed to counter the state uh, and that would, and, and clearly they're going to be very difficult it's pretty obvious what Ataturk's imagining is probably even Ibn Sa'ud Sheikh but then Sheikh Mahmoud so, that's, so uh, the first thing is Why revolt? The second thing is modernity. And the third thing, I think, is is political field. And I wonder how anti-verbarian political field is in the way you're using it. So I could could certainly, at at what I know at periods from uh, the late 1919 through the 20s, you could say, fine, the political field doesn't exist. It's a very fluid way. Who are the Sharifians? Who are the Arab nationalists? Uh, The moving between the the, the failed uh, attempts state building in Syria into both Jordan and Iraq so you've got the fluidity there but I suspect there's a kind of endism in the way you're using political field or the way I thought you were around uh, the, what's, what happens when the music finishes and you've got these states so I just wanted to tease you out on that and my final point I suppose again getting back to my first point is what is I, I, I need to know a lot about why these were anti-state and what anti-state involved. so you have a series of what were uh, defined by the British as kind of taxpayer rebellions, hey, who likes to pay tax let 's revolt if they, are they that? do you simply mean then they 're kicking against any authority because I think there would be a kind of archaeological um, excavation that would actually be looking at what political authority, what political imaginings were being challenged by the colonial state building project. And indeed, and again, it's it's, um, all Dawn's work, the shift from Ottomanism to Arabism, probably to statism. Uh, What's going on underneath that? Because there seems to be a juxtaposition between quite radical localism, maybe identity in Basra that that I know in Iraq, moving up to the argument that Iraq itself was a a field of political imagination to some degree, uh, and, and then moving on, to to, to to transnational fields. So I just want to nail you down on that as well. Those are my big points. And I'll throw it open while you're digesting that okay. and You can come back to that. sounds good. Who wants to ask a question? We stunned them into silence. Why don't you <laughs> answer those while people Okay will
2: digest um I'm going to start the, with the last question. Um uh, is this to is this kind of a, short teleology that gets us to a state field in the end no matter what and it relates to the other question about with revolt Um, I'm I think in trying to differentiate the revolts I'm trying to uh, the the point there is to deconstruct this kind of primary resistance Terrence Ranger thing and saying that at this point there's actually uh, some of these revolts and and I would, you know, the class of Ibn Saud and and, uh, Abdul Karim in the reef, those are somewhat different, but you could definitely say Ibn Saud and and Abdul Karim, different topographies, but they're starting off as somewhat similar building blocks and that they're sort of, uh, they're they're counterfactuals for each other, that if, and this gets into some of the, maybe the causation with the model, that if you had a different, uh, positioning of that emerging reef field that didn't have the dynamics that it had if it was somewhat like the Arabian emerging field where uh, this local dynamic is is reshaping and this is definitely what I'm interested in is the fact that it's not just Europeans that are shaping the story here I do think there's a catalyst the war is a catalyst the post-war settlement the the uh, aspired to post-war settlement is a catalyst but that what plays out there is very much driven, driven from below in the sense of below these empires driven by these local actors um, some of whom are creating very viable fields that in the case of Abdelkarim Karim took upwards of 200,000 soldiers and all manner of modern military hardware to eliminate and if they wouldn't if the French had not come in he starts to beg a lot of counterfactuals which is if Abdel Karim doesn't go into the French zone or etc. If he's willing to bargain earlier, um, but that you you have political order being created from below on the ground in the region, and that that's as much of the story uh, as uh, the the post-war settlement. You know, people sitting in drawing rooms and making that, support, or even sitting on the ground and in, in the, within the colonial state. That this is a interactive pro- process that is at least as much determined by. the this local input as it is from that pacification imperative that, that's happening. So on that side, um, the taxpayer revolt, I think there's some that are. I think in the Moroccan case I'm clearly would say that the, the, the Atlas is a taxpayer revolt and the, the Reef is initially a in taxpayer revolt that gets has a charismatic leader that channels it into something different. I need to work through the Mahmoud one and see to the degree to which he's trying to really coordinate and rationalize something that is uh, that could last over time and, and kind of have the resiliency. Um, the modernity question is something that I... I, I will have to probably maybe frontally... I, I'm indirectly talking about in terms of the technologies that the state has and I think is also similar to the technologies that the other side has. Uh, the sort of asymmetry dimension of this is important. Together, the, the imaginedness of the fact that Abdul Karim could read European papers and Kalakaji could read... This is There is a shared space uh, of a media environment in which there's knowledge of uh, because of the telegraph and because of other ways that these regions have become interconnected. So obviously the colonial administrator side can do that, but the local actors can too. So I think that, I, I need to explicitly foreground that. How, what's changed here is versus, um, I mean, another, you could look at the 1840s with Bougou rampaging or, 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 or Abu Qadr versus, you know, something that's happening earlier in the 19th century when some of the modernity apparatus isn't in place as much. And identity, uh, so, I've totally worked on identity more or less before this. So, this paper has way less identity in it. And it's because it, it's very, it's, it's, it's exactly what I was trying to work out in, in this first project. I haven't brought it into this yet, but very much um, I'm, I'm interested in the ways that jihad is conceptually a part of these. Uh, all of them would use, I mean, jihad gets used across the board for a long time, uh, but these would definitely be framed within that. They're getting tweaked as, what that means in terms of jihad, um, and I have worked some on, on the reef ones with these conceptions of like, the imagined parameters of this unit that's being mobilized, and what the aspiration is there, and all of that identity work, and the fact that that's conflictual and multi-vocal, Um I, you know, it's something that that I'm particularly interested in is expressing, and these are one of the things. I'm, one of the reasons I'm fascinated by this in, in terms of the historiography is like obviously most of the work has been done on the text producing. Uh, elites mainly in the Mushrik, um, but to the same extent, a little bit to the same extent in the Maghreb. So we don't talk as much about the rural uh, identity and ideological dimensions, but this is a central story here. And so looking off of non-traditional texts like popular uh, poetry songs, etc., that are part of the ways that, uh, I know there's a lot of parallels uh, between the, the Berber and Kurdish cases in some of those mechanisms of how you do identity and ide- ideology.
0: So, right. I want to ask.
3: Yes, you right.
0: Yeah. Oh, okay. you. Hi, John. for an
3: Excellent. presentation, Very thoughtful. Um, I, I may mean, have one quick theoretical question. Two uh, minor empirical points to bring up. I think my question concerns your conceptualization of the field, which strikes me very Bergsonian, you know, if I may, and. I think even though it captures your own career spray, right, it begs questions for me about what it could be missing and whether further specification is needed. And even though I agree with the way you divide up settled and unsettled and topography and the other components, you know, I think um, Toby's right about the question of causality here. And so I couldn't help but wonder, does power play into that, you know, framework that you have? Would you conceptualize that, would that, you know, help you with providing a causal explanation, because not only do you know have a field as a spatial arrangement, but a type of imperial rule, a competition between imperial powers to use a specific type of rule, the construction of societies and target objects as the targets of that rule. Uh, so I guess that would be the first question, is does power play into it, and are there other components in the field for you to consider, uh, for example, our transnational networks, um, discourses, other things that could factor into the analysis? Uh, related to that um, is the two empirical points, real quick, and that is when you mention revolt in these different places, I couldn't help but wonder if it's the type of revolt that also matters, and different repertoires of contention that get used. And along with that, it made me wonder if your methodology of restricting yourself to unsettled cases might limit you here. If maybe a comparison between a settled or an unsettled case might produce fruitful results. And the reason I think that, that empirically, if you look at repertoires of contention that you, were used in places like Egypt that you call settled, as opposed to greater Syria, which is more historically unsettled, very different modes of resistance uh, you know, against central authorities. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, that affects not only state formation, but political order. Um, and the last minor point uh, is regarding what you call the layering of unsettled fields. And I would counter that by saying, in Egypt, even though it was relatively settled, uh, there still was a degree of layering. For example, in the legal and the judiciary systems, it was known to be a dual system between British institutions and French institutions, which actually created some complications and problems in you know, the late 19th century. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would just kind of push you back more on how you categorize layering in a
0: different field. Well, if you hold that and we'll collect another couple. Yes, Madawi.
4: Uh, when we're talking about uh, local agency and the type of political uh, imagining that was going on, I, I'm not sure I find the, the um, literature and political science helpful. I'm uh, trained as an, an historical anthropologist, and I used the, the, the local uh, language to describe the kind of centralized power, authority. Uh, and I, they call themselves Emirates. And they spread across the Arabian Peninsula in little pockets. Um, and, and that kind of fluctuating uh, polity with fluctuating boundaries seriously expressed and reflected what was going on. In terms of the uh, idea or ideology under which these emirates lived, they varied from uh, purely Islamic to tribal. And this is probably specific to the Arabian Peninsula itself. But this is it makes me think that there were more established forms of the governance and the state formation. And if they don't feature in your presentation. I'm sure probably they are in the paper or the book. And that is Yemen and Romance. How do we account for the long history of the Umayyad in its Saudi <coughs> and its Zaydi uh, uh, sort faces of, uh, in that part of the world? Um, although the rebellions, the revolts are again in, in those two uh, uh, contexts. And finally, modernity. Uh, I, I totally agree with uh, uh, Toby that um, yes, we say that imperial powers consider and imagine this region and this seems to be an old discourse that's been going on and, uh, 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 and it's not an interesting story anymore. but. It is extremely important when we talk about what you mentioned as the technology. The technology to expand, rebel, it all came from imperial powers at the time. And there are serious actors, for example, in the Arabian who were recipients of this technology, the means of coercion to conquer. Shaheed uh, is one of them, is another, and multiple other actors uh, who. who if they're not recipient of British if uh, not military technology they were on the federal of the Ottoman Empire. So it is extremely important to keep that in mind while not denying the local of agency in imagining. Um, uh, but I think with modernity, it's the, the ideas that are extremely important that were circulating from the 20, uh, end of the 19th century to the early uh, 20th century. And that, I'm talking here not about Arab nationalism in its right or Ba'athist, but a kind of pan-Arabism that was centered possibly in the Hijaz uh, among an intelligentsia that was uh, uh, both Arab and Muslim, and some of them are non-Muslim. Uh, 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 sorry, non-Arab Muslims, who imagined a kind of an alternative to the Ottoman Empire. And it was very, very popular in the so there was pan-Islamic Arabism and pan-Arabism that were so important there, and it was a driving uh, uh, force, in addition also to alternative conceptions of a, an Arab caliphate to replace the Ottoman one. So all these ideas but extremely important. But when it comes to
0: technology we really know where it came from. Yeah, you're right. You're right <laughs> to reply, so I've got I've got six things, but if you've got more then uh, take <laughs> it
2: away. I yeah, I'll, I'll see I'll, I, I don't know if I'll cover every single one of them, but you know, as much as I can. Those thanks so much. Those are great, really great points. Uh, on uh, on Egypt, that's definitely... I think it, it doesn't contradict... It, it's, it's just another example of the fact that even you know these places like Egypt... I, I was pushing those into kind of ideal types, but you definitely see that the French pressure, which had been there this competition, as a contested space between the French and the British from uh, across the, the 19th century, is not gone after the war. Um, you know, it's not like Syria is also one of those ones. It's like, there's aren't settled as necessarily British versus French... Uh, there's, a, there's a kind of an open window that continues in Palestine Mandate, uh, Transjordan, Syrian, etc. Um, I'm, I'm going to skip around between the two. Um, that was great. I really like the idea on identity uh, in the Arabian Peninsula. and these, the fact that. And this is something that, that, that I'm drawn to about this period, and the reason I'm, I'm, I'm titling this Reimagining Political Space, which uh, the both the, the, the comments from Toby and, and this comment too, this identity side is something that, that ha- isn't in, in there yet. But this is this time in which really there's this really wide range of possibility. And people aren't necessarily imagining a nation state. They're imagining a lot of different things, and it's it's not locked into that procrastinate bed. And... Um, so that, I think that's a, that's really helpful in, as, as other examples, and the, the Caliphate movements, definitely. and the, the, How long that's viable into the 1920s, and um, I was just in, in the archives today, and, and and that was coming up in the these delegations coming from South Asia that are very perturbed about it, the, all of these dynamics. The the the, the, the uh, they're interlinked. The Atatürk abolishing the Caliphate, the rise of the sort of Arab Caliphate, uh, the Exile of of Hussein and the sort of elimination of the sort of potential of a caliphate in, in this moment is is another level at which there's being is being reimagined. I'll have to figure out what to do with Yemen Oman. Definitely, those are the sort of cases with long uh, long view um, poles of state governance, um, in, very long, right? <laughs> Three thousand years possibly in 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 Yemen. Um, on I guess the question with I don't I on the causality issue maybe this will spark some more questions um I don't know if the field is ever used as a causal explanation I don't think Borges is using as a causal explanation uh, so I don't know that I'm trying to either I'm trying to use it as a clarifying heuristic that I then need to get into some of the dynamics um, that I think are you guys are doing really... It's great to hear the the ways that you're pointing out. Um, the type of revolt definitely matters. The type of revolt in the type of context matters. Um, and I think that's what, the story that I want to play out in kind of a close reading of these moments. Whether to choose all cases of revolt, should I choose non-revolt? I, I'm going to have to figure that out. I, I like that point that you made, that pitting Egypt versus Syria to clarify what's different in a subtle ish versus an unsettled-ish type of thing is... is I'm, I'm up to that. Cool. Ivor? Well,
5: this is a bona fide question, by the way. The use of, of, of fields is... i found... i quite quite learned to use fields in, in a social undertaking. The first time was to try and use field to analyze international Mm-hmm. And that failed, because as Bourdieu uses it himself, the field is held together by a state that has metacapital, so if there is no state, <coughs> there is nothing with metacapital and the field creates down. just as heuristic to well, us. I don't want to go into the Christianity, I don't want to walk off that.
2: No, I, I agree. Yeah, totally. It's yeah. a limitation.
5: The second time I tried like to use it was for a project on the Eurasian step in historical sociology. And I found that there simply wasn't enough information mm. about the specific practices that I needed to know about in order to use concepts such as field. So I ended up using the concept of polity and ideal types, simply by default. And I'm It would be a cheeky thing to ask whether there is enough information to use the concept of field since you've already used the concept of field. So I won't pitch won't in those times. <laughs> but I would ask you, do you feel now that you want to go back and do it again using ideal types <laughs> simply to, to the, see what you can get out of that heuristics? What are you satisfied with having done this and you think the field stands up
2: even in the European of the state? I, so this is, the, the good thing So this is early on and I'm a little bit, I haven't committed all the way. So I'm open to suggestion. Okay, my, I think one, one thing you're pointing out is, is the idea of a field carries a lot of baggage. It's just right, when you, I mean, Bourdieu possibly ruined it, or, right, he so dominated the the, the, the deployment of it that can I get, because I'm not using it in a Bourdieusian sense. Um, I like the way that Sam Zubeda used it to talk about the sort of growing national political field, and I'm talking about a moment before that's there, yeah. It's the pre-story to that. Uh, so I think this is, this is a valuable question. This is part of the reason I was like, okay, what do people do with that? In mean, This kind of an audience is yeah. this is a field thing working or not? Mm-hmm. Um, can can I break out of that? And you know, I think there are there's other literature that's tried to uh, you know in sociological literature that's tried to debord not deboarderzian, just like just bifurcate. Like there is a bordesian specific kind of deployment of that concept um, that is very much uh, has almost has a lot of precision to it. And he loads it with a lot. Um, It definitely requires a state, and I don't like the way that he uses it in that sense because he's just talking about a very, I think somewhat an exceptional condition uh, of a very well-developed, rationalized, modern European state. He's basically talking about France, and I don't know if it... Does it work outside of France? I don't know. Does it work in France? Maybe that's that's falsifiable, too. So that's... I, I agree. I don't know. Can I get out of the... The baggage of the field concept because I think in other ways if you just if you just think about it from an Einsteinian perspective it's working for me and in the terms of spatial force etc uh, in an in, in electromagnetic magnetic field theory applied to social political space I like it It work I think it does help me and I do have the information to talk about it um, but I'll have to... Maybe we can talk afterwards about how you ended up using polity in ideal times.
0: George.
6: Well, my questions have really been asked, but I may as well ask them anyway. I I think just in a slightly different way. Which is very similar to Ivers, which is what's at stake with fields in particular. And you're getting at it um, because... You use the idea that it's an interpretive model, you use the idea that it's heuristic, you use the idea that it's an imaginative exercise, and some of the other ways just falling back on us that the Sermons was quite descriptive in a way, right? it was just helping him get at some of the mess that he saw. He didn't mean anything particularly by it, certainly not in an explanatory sense. And then you've got the field wars that you're hinting at in historical sociology, you've got Steinmetz and Julian Go on one side, and then you've got the, the Flickstein... Lot on the other. And they, they, these are radically different views of fields, right? And they, they're going after each other because it, it, in the Flixton use, it's completely depoliticized. There's no meta capital, there's, there's no the contestation, article. there's yeah. nothing at stake. It just becomes a nice, neat bit of sociology of which to describe virtually any type of organizational impetus. And all. So there is a lot at stake there. And I still wanted to tease out what it is if you're going to go with the concept you think it's giving to you. Particularly if this. Diagram. if we're to take that seriously which I think we should from, from reading the paper and listening to you that you're hinting at an explanation both in terms of the different character of these revolts and in terms of their likelihood of success in which case field may be getting in the way or at least it may be providing a first cut but then underneath that there may be the hints actually of an explanatory scheme we're going on whether it's about politicisation of identity or whatever it might be or, or various forms of political order making that actually is going to give you give you more actually than the field analytic will so it's not really a question actually it's more of a provocation or just mm. a statement. Um, the second one which may be a question is about what happens to translocal itself <coughs> because I get your move to rethink the basic geographical unit and that seems to me powerful and well made and, and, and really interesting and get away from mythological nationalism on this period and, and maybe more generally. But then you do generate other things that are more or less contained, units of political order, and they're on the board and they have different outcomes, and you compare those different things that have this different kind of endogenous logics, more or less. What I didn't get that much of was the translocal stuff, the connections between them, whether it's translocal or intersocietal or international or interpolity or whatever it might be, or inter-network, that was doing the work in terms of helping us understand why they came about when they did, whether they're likely to succeed or not. So. Is the translocal an in- important part of this? And if so, to what extent is it? And the final thing was just about your um, your addition to the to the field literature about layered and, and polarity. A simple provocation here would be what side of political order isn't layered? Um, the claim isn't the Bavarian claim is not an actual monopoly, it's a claim of monopoly. And of course that's going to be contested and it's contested all the time, sometimes more than others, and I buy, like, the, wild wow, settle-unsettle thing. It may be more up for grabs at certain times than others, but it's never completely uncontested. So <coughs> what analytic purchase, let alone explanatory purchase, does Lay give us? And I just have a slight aversion of this only IR hat that I would will be willing to wear for the moment that I can think of. The polarity is something that's going to help you describe a domestic, or endogenous, some internal form of political order, mm-hmm. rather than a... Or regional yeah. system or some type of international system. I mean, why not just stick with the the Tilly line that he makes from Trotsky, the idea of dual sovereignty, or multiple sovereignty, which describes civil conflict or civil unrest or various forms of revolt going on in a particular space where there's a claim of political authority that may or may not be particularly bordered. That strikes me as something that's already there in the literature, which might give you just as much as this notion of polarity.
2: Mm. Um... On the field wars um, question. Again, yeah, it's it's I am definitely testing the water to see if it's worth borrowing trouble. Um, or just shift the the verbiage and if I shift the verbiage then I start to lose some of the that that sort of that common sense idea of the sort of ways that we think of field as a space and the and, and, and interactions that happen within that space. Um, so I, I uh, I do think that there's an explanation that's happening here and and if I wanted to play it out um, as again the sort of conjunctural structure of what's happening in a given unsettled field given the inputs of this external uh, the the empire state building the colonial state building is happening the exigencies of what happens on the ground in these local movements and what kind of a movement comes out of it and then what's happening around that. I think those, I think in the case of Syria, you could just say there's a, there are structural reasons why these things happen the way they happen in, in Syria. Um, if we, um, you know, that the map actually, like back to a kind of environmental, I'm not going to, a total environmental determinist, but, well, let's go back to that one. You know, where you get green and where you get brown, and in Syria, where you have green and where you have brown, where you have settled agriculture and where you have urban spaces and where you have rural spaces. Like, those things really matter in terms of what sort of a center, what a center can try to do to uh, project force within that space and how far it can go and what happens within it, and what sort of uh, local uh, <coughs> slippages that might happen in Morocco. I mean, this topic, uh, whatever, this environmental factors that inflect how you do... A state, um, you know, and I think Jim Scotts get, you know, he he deals very well with the Southeast Asian context, sort of gr- settled rice-producing grain agriculture and the kind of technologies you need to do that, and the ways that you can extract it, that you can count it, um, and in this region it definitely definitely applies in different ways. It's not exactly the same sort of a state versus a non-state juxtaposition. It's really close. You have desert, this, the nomad, you know, the uh, seed and whatever, this, the, the whole desert and, and urban space binary. Um, so that this will you know I need to, I need to play it out more I the same thing on the translocal that's very <laughs> underdeveloped in the paper. I, I agree uh, that's something that um, I need to spend in the chapter structure that would deal with the, the cases I end up with um, having that be a major built-in section that zeros in on the translocal factors that are intersecting there. so again, so I didn't do it, but what I see happening there is that a, a, a case like the reef, you have everything from a Broadway play being produced, hit Broadway play in 1926, called, um, based upon Abdel Karim, um and to uh, Massali Hajj, this Algerian communist nationalist, who um, you know, the, the French communists are all over the reef war uh, criticizing it, to this this movement of troops, as I mentioned. Um, troops from different parts of Morocco into the reef, Spanish troops, Franco, the Army of Africa, that Spanish history, French history, and in a larger transnational um, histories are being, are, these revolts are, are a place where, where those things come together. And I, don't, I, can't, I didn't enumerate all of those things. This is kind of part of the research is to kind of work through those. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's something that's like more to come, uh, maybe down the line. And on lay- layering and polarity, I think I agree. And, and again, I think the like all, all fields are, are there's layering, there's effects, there's no true monopolies, but there's again maybe a more and less sort of a, a spectrum there. Yeah. That you have places like Syria are way more layered right now than Canada. Yeah, well, yeah, Possibly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Or I'm just you know that or you know the. the there's scales of those, and some are extremely densely layered, and some are less so. Um, on the polarity, it is definitely playing with the idea of a subnational. Mean, polarity has definitely been an IR thing, and I was like, well, what about a subnational sort of idea of polarity versus uh, multiple sovereignties? I think the, f- the reason with <laughs> polarity is I think that it evokes more, uh, that there's still a kind of a spatial side to it that you don't get with multiple sovereignties or dual sovereignties. And, hmm. So you could have, anyway, I just think that these aren't bipolar necessarily, but I kind of, I'll have to see if the metaphor continues to work. But that was the, the reason I was trying to, to think through that.
7: Awesome. All right. Um, thank you yeah. for your paper. My name is I'm the, uh, cool. um, This is potentially one of those questions or sort of comments that are um, not... Very secretly allows me to talk about my own research. Uh, yeah, I don't research the Middle East, but I do research um, Afghanistan in the 19th century. And the thing that really interested me in your paper was this um, process of exile that a lot of these revolt leaders had spent time outside of the of the area in which they, the, the revolts mm-hmm. had taken place. And I wondered just thinking about this, um, getting beyond territorialization, of thinking about, you know, so you, um, interconnections between these, these actors, whether that is something that comes through in your research, um, you know, as tied up in processes of modernity, whether mobility is, is something that's actually yeah. going on here as well, I mean, and it's one of the kind of causal factors. So a lot of these people are exiled in India, you know, tying yeah. with Indian nationalist movements as well, all parts of um, Syria, and, and here I'm thinking of um, the period that you study in Afghanistan, there is a change of regime, and many of these groups are brought back from exile mm. and bring with them ideas. Some of them who have spent time with the young Turks. In fact, there's even a young Afghans movement um, that resembles some of these uh, sort of ideas that are floating around at the time. So mm. maybe that might be a way to sort of bring in more of a trans-local, trans-regional aspect. And secondly, um, I, I just wonder whether assemblage has ever come into your thinking. Yeah, so instead of talking about ideal types and territorializing groups, whether you might actually
2: find that more fruitful. Yeah, yeah, that might be. That's just a yeah. thought, really. i have to think through that. I, the idea is so exile, or even, um, so some of them are exile. I'm thinking of the, where um, Zani goes, they go back, I mean, back and forth. There's definitely something happening there. Abdul Karim in the Reef, he doesn't exile, but he works in Malia and his brother works, uh, it goes to School of Mines in Madrid and that. And the modernity stories, like the people, like, um, and I would say the reason the Reef is different than the Atlas or different from these other cases the fact that Abdul Karim, and he, he studied under some Salafist teachers in Caroway and Fez, um, read Spanish, on, I, I don't know what other languages he'd read. So, yeah, they're very specific modern type of uh, figures that bridge this, socially bridge and are able to convert the tribal infrastructure that is a kind of potential resource for mo- mobilizing research, resource that, that, that they're able to create a hybrid form of a, an, a, a, an apparatus above that that marshals the military potential and sort of is able to organize it in effective ways. Ibn Saud would be one that I'm not sure. Right? Obviously, he's a modernizer, but he doesn't have an external experience. We have to explore where where that comes from. But right, he's fighting these battles with uh, with the Wahhabis about you know can you use a telegraph, can you use a car, can you do those things and the technologies of warfare. So yeah, that's a, that's a good point. And exploring the actual biographical translocal dimensions that are happening um, with some of these. Yeah. Hi. Thank
3: you for presentation that this is going to be a really interesting project and with a lot of of interesting empiricals uh, coming out of it. But I just had a few questions about uh, conceptual clarification. Mm -hmm. So I was just wondering, are you trying to explain similarity or difference? So as, as we're moving from unsettled to settled, are you trying to get at similarities in that movement across the region? Or are you trying to look at the differences mm-hmm. between the different movements and trying to explain that? That's and good, yeah. I think that leads to the, my kind of second um, clarification question, which is if you have um, this field with different forces pulling at it, like a, a magnetic field, as you've been talking about, then what exactly adjudicates the different mm-hmm. forces?
2: yeah um similar to indifference i I
1: would',
2: would trying to figure out this because in and again <laughs> I'm not gonna cram I, I'm trying to avoid the temptation to just like cram cases into the same box um, but I do think you could find find more similar uh pairings where I, I've done one with Abdul Karim and, and uh, ibn Saud um something like uh, the Sanusi's and I, I don't know if I can pair them up well um, with, with the various Kurdish movements. You you have a Sufi both ideological and institutional infrastructure that's not irrelevant in both of those. Um, so I think that the, the pairings um, I would be trying to do would be uh, Either contrast between uh, dissimilar cases, or contrast between, let's say, Ibn Saud and, and Abdul Karim are similar cases with very different outcomes. Like they're exa- almost, they're extremely similar structurally, with a totally different outcome. Abdul Karim is that that's a, a, does not emerge as a state, but that Saudi Arabia is continu- continues the president of the state. I need to clarify that. I'm not trying to. This is hard to do because in the 1930s, by, let's say maybe 1935, it takes. I, this is another point: is just periodization-wise, just the dates are way wrong if we think that this is something that gets done in 1920 or 1919. Um, but I'm not really interested in just telling um, the story of how you ended up getting to Iraq, uh, and this goes back to some of the earlier earlier points. is about. Am I just? I mean, you could, I, I would ask myself the question: is Am I just telling the same story and just pushing it way longer, making it a longer story? Or am I trying to tell a different story that the Europeans? It's, it's not this how the Europeans made the Middle East story. Is it something fundamentally different? This has come up in some of the questions. I want to tell a story that obviously the the they achieved something like a stable space, for, and these are resilient units. I mean, they've come apart before, and this is this was the big question mark, it's like how can these boundaries and these authoritarian regimes, how can the state, post-colonial state, this is your territory, how does it maintain its, how, how does it maintain such a resilience through time if it's so arbitrary? Um, it's not a, the frontal question that I'm interested in. I'm interested in this kind of outlier stories that don't, didn't fit into that process or they had to be overcome. I mean, some of them create, like Turkey and Saudi Arabia exist because of the mechanisms that I'm talking about or because of this, these dynamics. Others, potential states did not emerge because of other factors. So that's, I think that's more what, what I'm interested in. And just the fact that there's this openness 100 years ago that I don't think is irrelevant right now. I mean, it's reimagining of what this should look like has not gone away. So... I need to nail that down more. Um. Yeah, Tara.
8: I wonder in your research design, if you're really looking at doing a large survey of what are those physical sites of political conflict, not revolt, revolt I think is, is too specific, but what are physical sites of political conflict, and then try to create typologies or kinds of ways to describe that conflict. So in much of the way, I mean, I do political science, the way the literature has looked at civil war and causes mm-hmm. or
7: so,
8: you know, can we make typologies of that? And then would you be able to put those into blocks and categories? And would that give you some kind of answer to mm-hmm. basically you're, you're asking you know, the kinds of conflicts that happen at this moment that you have decided is special, and a lot of others have decided is special in the 1920s, 1930s, mm-hmm. and the kind of conflicts that emerged then if they influence the kind of state that emerges, does that mm-hmm. moment have something to say with durability? Right. Some kind of effect on durability. Yeah. That would be really, really interesting. And especially in the in the Arabian states, I mean we it's definitely translocal because you've got a very different notion of territoriality, you've got a very different notion of um, of conflict. I mean it, it, it comes because of pressures that the the colonial, the British put on tribes, but it instigated new localized conflict between them. Right. But it also had sometimes nothing to do with that, and it was pure, you know, international economy. The pearl industry collapses, and then that's what instigates new conflict. So I think you've got to kind of apply the international political economy bit and this local um, aspect, and it would be a great collaborative project to kind of survey these these conflicts mm-hmm. across the region at this moment,
2: this kind of decade moment. Yeah, that's really helpful. Um, I don't, I, I, so I use the word revolt, I very, whatever, uh, intentionally titled it that and use these as my categories, I don't like the word, though. I don't like, and I like uh, what you're pointing to in terms of uh, political, sites of political conflict or something like that, is more what I'm interested in, because Or, like, rebellion. Like, it it begs the question of... I mean, it's the same question. I don't like the word insurgency. It's an absolutely loaded political... Politically determined categorization of the phenomenon. And I want to be agnostic about... I don't think... It's not a revolt from the the perspective of the... Pardon? It assumes
8: the primacy of the colonial... Exactly, yeah, I mean... And all political conflict isn't necessarily in relation to
2: that. Right. And they're definitely not a duly constituted, legitimate... Force. I mean, a power. That, that that state is not in that position. So, um, and again, to kind of using the this was what you mentioned before about how did they themselves describe what they were doing? And so, really, this idea of jihad in a lot of these cases is is relevant. Um, and I've done a lot, you know, more work on that before this, but that's that's an important yeah. Jihad against of the Wahhabis, yeah. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a very important yeah, distinction, yeah. So
4: Jihad, which we mentioned, the word Jihad, but doesn't mean uh, the
2: same thing in different context. Totally,
4: yeah. So the Jihad in Algeria, in North Africa, in Syria, in Iraq, in 1941, is completely different from the South Jihad, right. which was supported
7: by
1: the petition against other Muslims. So right. It's a completely different perception. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah um, <coughs> thank you for this. I'm I'm looking for my personal interest at, uh, don't have any academic background in, in the Middle East, but um, <clears throat> some of the concepts that you're, you've raised, which I found interesting, um, and I found this entire task quite enormous, to be honest. In fact, um, the whole region is a hotbed of, of, of differences, and um, what I found interesting is that empirical borders that were, were drawn up, which are quite well established and understood, but the fact that they were overlaid against an existing tribal system and the tribal system itself wasn't, you uh, know, it was established per tribe, these borders now created situations and conflicts that possibly weren't there before. And the fact that the state is built on the, on, on the basis of what we understand to be a state, social care and what have you, requires a, a country to generate re- generate income somehow. And so what you're sort of getting in the Middle East and at North Africa now is sort of establishing a... A, a, a economy of such with uh, a disunited people. And what I'm finding with the example of Jordan, for example, where you have the tribes, um, the tribal leaders, they, they interact with the government and they support the government. And Jordan has a completely very different political landscape to say Syria or, or to Iraq for example, where it was a dictatorship. And so to really to, to push on that point, um, have you seen end state Given that these uh, local issues um, are, are always going to flare up, um, in the fact that you know, a, an economy, a country, still needs to function you know, in a way that helps people, but um, you know, if we go to an end state that puts another tribe in power or, or puts uh, another group in power, can we actually achieve that? And that's, that that's the first sort of uh, uh, view that I've got. The second one is. is um, the centralisation, the, you know, the, the fact you've mentioned Sharia you know, through the Middle East as um, sort of like a centralising um, movement to, to get the people involved. Now this sort of touches on the tribal side as well, that uh, the tribes um, have their certain customs. Now they may all be Islamic, but uh, through the Muslim world, Islamic world, there's a, a, a huge array, uh, array of differences. Um, different, uh, you mentioned Salafists, the, the Shias, the different Sunni sects, the otherwise Um, And so there's been a historical uh, uh, struggle between these guys anyway. And we've had uh, tribal customs, which are not purely religious, but have sort of merged into that uh, jihad, you mentioned sharia type of movement, which is moving across the Middle East. So I'm trying to understand what the end state is, given that sort of this has exploded into what we see at the moment. Yes, I can understand that the empirical um, lines that were drawn up in the 20s have contributed to this, but these issues, to a lesser extent, to a less organised extent, without technology, are still in existence. But you put technology in the piece and, uh, and and power these guys, obviously it's just going to go to a new level. So it's really around that insight. Is your work looking to sort of um, explore that, or is it really to um, you know to, to to cover what's happening? Now?
2: <coughs> uh I it's kind of moving to the normative side of um that question sort of asked is a bit of a normative question about in state. Um I think part of what I would want to do with this is show the it's just to decenter the nation state as an in state. there's a lot of stating going on there. But that that's not the teleological endpoint of political development. It's not it's just to expose its contemporary nature. Um, it's not, I don't think it's a necessarily contingent nature, but to, there are levels of contingency to why it emerged the way it did. Um, that there were viable other forms of political order, and that even at this moment, which is the origin point for these, that these other forms of political order had a lot of influence on it. I think it's... Some of the points you're raising up, um, the interaction of the state with various forms of difference within religious or ethnic difference. Um, A lot of times the religious and ethnic difference, the conflicts uh, that are oriented around those boundaries were results of states rather than something that happens when you don't have a strong state. Almost all of them are... They're catalyzed, uh, they're activated because of state policies. Um, so, I'm not an anarchist. I don't necessarily, I mean, I just don't, I'm not a full believer in, I, I'm, I'm, I, I'm. kind of like the last point in the paper is that state formation has enormous costs and it's not fair to only count costs on the non-state side or um, these uh, other these sides. Part of this, project will just be calculating the cost, of what it, what it took to create Libya, what it took to create Morocco, what it took to create Iraq, what it took to create Saudi Arabia, Turkey, etc. Um, you know, body numbers, I just think, again, apples and apples, uh, that's part of the story that has to be told. And it's definitely part of the story um, within an American environment where the, where the Department of Defense is <coughs> issuing 10-year plans in which they're Making planning around an aspiration to a monopolization, like govern state governed spaces globally. I mean, there's recognition that that's absolutely not possible, but there's still. Not mean People are sitting back and back to that point. Point I was making earlier about this sort of hinge moment where you have central states. It's like it's fine. We're going to leave those areas ungoverned, but in a post-9/11 context, that's. Not practicable. So, like, this is there's a central sort of quandary in in, in that, that the aspiration there remains to eliminate those threats. They're perceived as threats, and then you have to eliminate it. You want to say something? Yeah, (laughs) I just you you keep saying that these there's areas that are ungoverned. They're not state governed, I should say. They're they're self governing. They're self governing, but only to an extent, right? Because it seems like you're forgetting about these networks that work outside of the state and that are also controlled by the state. So like family relations, uh, relationships between the village and the urban areas, tribal networks, that kind of thing that still functions outside of the state structure. Right. No, I would I would count all of that, yeah. So not governed by a central state, I guess. Is, I, guess uh, I mean, the Senussis are just their, their space is this sort of network that spans into Egypt's western desert it goes across to the south it, you know, in, they have relations well, different, the, the Asir is an Idrisid that's not centrally connected but anyway I, I agree there's a lot of varieties of governance or controls that are not necessarily state based yeah.
0: well let's leave it there uh, before we thank uh, a very thought provoking ambitious paper uh, I should say that uh, our next uh, meeting uh, of the Middle East, organised by the Middle East Centre, is on Thursday and where a panel of experts explore the question of democracy and its longevity in uh, Turkey. Uh, and that's at 5:30. And I think tonight at six o'clock, I do believe George Lawson, another prominent historical sociologist, is launching his book um, on uh, international relations and, and historical sociology. Uh, I don't know where that is, but someone can tell it you. It's at the Hong Kong Theatre. It's at the Hong Kong Theatre. It might be
2: 6. 30. I think I 6. Don't no, anyway. If you get there at 6, you'll be there at
0: one. Okay, all right. Well, let's thank our speaker. Thank you very much. Thank you.